Good morning, church. Well, this morning I want to talk about hope. And I want to talk about hope because I suspect that many of you either have been or maybe you're here now and you're feeling a little hopeless. Maybe you're feeling a little little anxious, a little discouraged. Maybe you're finding that all the things in your life that you thought would bring meaning and purpose don't really seem to bring that meaning and purpose. Maybe you find that every goal you set and every goal you achieve doesn't necessarily bring you fulfillment. And maybe your hope is tied not to your faith, but maybe it's tied to some expected outcome. In Ephesians 2.12, Paul writes, Remember at that time when you were separate from Christ. I mean, remember back when you didn't have a relationship, when you didn't know who God was, when you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, when you weren't part of God's family, when you were strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Maybe that describes who you once were, or maybe that describes who you are now. Not really have a relationship with Jesus, not really feeling as part of the family of God, a stranger to the covenant, not really knowing the promise. And so you're without hope and with your, without God in this world. I've said before, people, people say to me, you know, Pastor Brian, it's really hard to be a Christian. And to that I say, amen. And you know what's even harder? Not to be a Christian. Yeah. You know, it's even harder to live without God and without hope in this world. And so in Romans 15, 13, Paul writes, (coughs) sorry, excuse me. (coughs) Getting all excited over here. (laughs) Forgive me, I get a little cold here. Romans 15, 13, Paul writes, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. I love that phrase. May the God of hope, may, him, may he fill you with all joy and peace in believing. We've talked about believing as an active faith, as trusting. As you trust him more and more, as you walk with him in relationship, may the God of hope fill you with joy and with peace, with the very thing you and I long for, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in or you may overflow in hope. So that no matter what's going on in your life and what's going on in my life, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can abound in hope. That's Paul's prayer for us. That's my prayer for us. Psalm 39, 7. and says, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. See, some of us, maybe we're in a season of waiting, of expecting, of hoping, And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Our hope, where does our hope lie? What are our expectations? Like many of you, there are a lot of things going on right now in our family. In fact, I made a to-do list. I'm big on to-do lists, and I feel like there's no time in life where there's not a corresponding to-do list. So I have a to-do list, and I've sent it to those closest to me, and it's printed, and it's hanging in my office right now. And here's what it says. Trust God. Walk together. 
Enjoy each day and keep ministering to everyone. Every morning I read it. Trust God. Trust God. Doesn't need, it doesn't need to be explained more than that. Trust God. Have an active faith. Have a belief in God. Walk together. I've said before, the enemy doesn't care how he gets you alone. He only cares that you're alone. Walk together. Enjoy each day. If there is breath in your lungs, you have the gift of life for this moment, for this day. What are you going to do with it? And keep ministering to everyone. Because his ways are better than our ways, and his plans are better than our plans. And no matter what kind of plans you have for your life, I promise you, his plans are so much better than your plans. See, our hope isn't in the government. It isn't in our finances. It isn't even in our health. Our hope is in Christ. Worldly hope is tied to outcomes. Our hope is tied to faith in the God who is faithful, right? And so the world likes to say, well, faith is good and hope is good. But faith and hope are only as good as the object of our faith and hope. I can have a lot of faith in my ability to play pickleball, and every week I'm going to show up and someone's going to destroy me here on the pickleball court. Sorry. (laughs) Worldly hope is tied to outcomes, right? This is the biblical, I mean, this is the worldly definition of hope. It's an emotional state. I love that right at the outset. It's a feeling. The opposite of which is despair which promotes the belief in a positive outcome related to events and circumstances in one's life. It is the feeling that what is wanted can be had, or events will always turn out for the best. It is the act of looking forward with reasonable confidence that something desired might happen. So worldly hope is tied to outcomes. This is what I want to happen. This is what I think should happen. But the biblical understanding of hope is tied to faith. And apart from Christ, there is no hope. There is none. And faith in anything other than Christ is useless. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 14, if Christ has not been raised, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, if he isn't who he claimed to me, if he has not overcome sin and death, Paul just doesn't say he's a good example. You know, he, he might have said some things that are useful to you. Paul says, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. He says, we are all people to be most pitied. People should feel bad for us if the only hope we have is hope in, in Christ in this life, in this world. But of course, we know that's not the case. We know that Jesus is alive. We know that we can have hope in him. In 1 Peter 1.21, it says, Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and your hope are in God. An expectation, which is a belief that is centered on the future, may or may not be realistic. And so a less advantageous result gives rise to the emotion of disappointment. I'm hopeful if things turn out the way I want them to. I'm not hopeful if they don't. Life is good around me. I'm good. Life is bad. I'm bad. And we live the same way the world does, up, down. Because our hope's not tied to our faith. 
Our hope's not tied to Jesus Christ. Our hope's tied to what we think we want. And we're going to look deeper at that. What are some of our expectations? What are those things that we think, well, if I only had that, if I only did that, if God only granted that? There's a, I was reading about this guy, Dr. Tom, Tom Meinham. He's a financial therapist who deals with people who came into windfalls of cash. So there's actually a guy whose job it is to deal with people who all of a sudden got a lot of money. And you think, well, what a nice problem to have, right? Except for what he says is, after most people come into a windfall of cash, most of them self-destruct, and they end up much more unhappy than they were before. Because in their mind, they thought, well, if I had money, and you can put whatever you want in there, if I had this job and this relationship and this house and this car, whatever it is, if I had that, then I would be fulfilled. And when they get that and they're not fulfilled, there's a profound sense of disappointment and sadness. And what now? Because their hope is tied to things their hope ought not to be tied in. Things that will never fulfill and never satisfy and never give ultimate meaning. Again, we can exchange money for a whole bunch of stuff. Relationships, career, titles, degrees. See, many of us say we're Christians. We say we believe in Jesus. But what do we really put our faith in? Because there are places you can go and gospels that will be preached and, and we joke about it and we call it the, you know, the Pedro Jesus. If you've ever seen Napoleon Dynamite, vote for me and all your wildest dreams will come true. Give your life to Jesus and everything's going to work out. Ultimately, that's true. And like Paul, we can say, like, you know, compared to knowing Christ, all the stuff I've done, all the stuff I've had, it, it doesn't even compare. But most of the time, when people follow Jesus in the Bible, life doesn't go according to plan. It gets more difficult. That's not to say it's not more beautiful, because fire refines our faith if we allow it to. And the goal of the Christian life is to change, right? He must become greater. He must increase. I must decrease. So if you ask people, if you do studies on what people are most afraid of, they're most afraid of change. Guess what? The power of the gospel is that I can be less like me and more like Jesus. And the less like Jesus I am, the more change that needs to take place and the more painful that is. But when we submit to that, I guarantee you, you'll look back. Ephesians 3.20, right? Now to him who is able, and I love this phrase, to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Immeasurably more. That means your goals for your life don't compare to God's goals for your life. Is it going to be easier? No. Chances are no. But is it going to be better? Absolutely. Is it going to be more beautiful? Absolutely. Is it going to last beyond you? Absolutely. See, our hope is tied to our expectations rather than our faith too often. And this is very important. Because the question we need to ask ourselves is, what do we put our hope in? Do we have the right expectations of God? Do we really understand his purposes for our lives? I listened to a sermon by Tim Keller, and he said, we have a tendency to come to God and tell him he's our king, and then immediately ask for something. Now, the Bible says you have not because you ask not. So there's a principle. There's, there's a, there's, you, you are called to ask God for things. There's nothing wrong with asking God to change the situation. We're going to get deeper into that. 
The problem is those things can become the be-all, end-all. Those things can become the focus, and those things may well not be what God wants for you. And so he says we can come to God, and we can tell him he's our king, and then immediately ask for something, some perceived need or want. And the reality is, if we are not careful, the extra thing we think we need in addition to Jesus, that's really our king. That's what's really on the throne of our heart. Not him, the desired outcome, the relationship, the job. That becomes the object of our affection. He is not our king then. We are our own king. And make no mistake, the throne cannot be shared. And so what we're going to talk about this morning is a king. A king who came to give people hope, but the people didn't understand. They didn't understand who he was, and they didn't understand ultimately why he came. And still today, to each one of us in this room, he extends that same offer. And I'm afraid that many times, many of us still fail to understand. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 19. We're going to look at verse 28. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. Even the heading in my Bible says, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king, right? That's what we celebrate, Palm Sunday. Verse 28 28 says, after Jesus has said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here, and if anyone asks you why you're untying it, say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt, and they put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks in the road. And when he came there, the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And often that's where we stop. And that's where we focus on the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. But that's not really what Luke intends here. In fact, if we continue, you'll see in verse 41 something that's remarkable, and that's really the the key passage here to focus on. And it says this, as he, Jesus, approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. One of the only two times in Scripture that it's noted that Jesus wept. Now we know he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We're assuming he cried more than twice, but there's only two times where the Bible specifically mentions Jesus weeping. One is in John 11:35 at the death of his friend Lazarus, who he knew incidentally he was gonna raise, but it broke his heart because it broke the hearts of the people that loved him. And here, in some translations that say he wailed. And Jesus is approaching the city 
and they're praising his name. And Jesus is weeping, and his heart is breaking. And the reason his heart is breaking, we will see, is because the people didn't understand who he was or why he really came. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. If you only knew, if you only understood what I offered, you were thirsty, you wanted a little water, I'm the living water. You were hungry, you wanted a little bread, I'm the bread of life. If you only knew, if you could only see outside of your situation, if you could only see outside of your circumstance, if you were only aware of your condition, you would recognize. And he says this, but now it is hidden from your eyes. If you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, what would bring you fulfillment, what would satisfy your longing, That's what peace means. It's the absence of turmoil. It's a sense, no matter what's going on around you, that everything's going to be okay because of the God who lives inside you. It's the same thing when Jesus stood among them, when they were discouraged, when nothing was looking like they they thought it was going to look, when Jesus was crucified, when they were talking at one point of, hey, what's my position going to be? Am I going to be on your right or left? What do you think? And now Jesus is crucified. Now, this is not the plan. And what does Jesus do? He comes, and he stands among them, and he says, Shalom, my peace I give you. The very thing each of us long for is what Jesus promises, and it's what he promised. And he says, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you do not recognize the time of God's coming to you. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end leads to death. You know why Jesus was weeping? You know why he was heartbroken? Because we're so so short-sighted. And he's like, you're going to continue trying to do what you've always done, which is going to lead to the destruction you've always seen. And I've come, and I've offered you a different way, and you've missed it. And how many times does he enter into our circumstance? And I've said before, Jesus is not indifferent. He is not uncaring. He cares about your circumstance. Sometimes he will deliver you from your circumstance. But what he cares more about is your condition. I was saying to somebody the other day, the heart of the problem is always a problem of the heart. It's not an intellectual problem. It's not a, it's a you know, we, we, we fill it with sin. Sins, I say all the time, is just a cheap substitute for something better God has for us. But that's just, that's just a symptom. That's just, that's just something we do. The problem is a heart problem. And Jesus is the only answer. The problem is a hopelessness problem. And Jesus is the only answer. Jesus, the son of a carpenter, educated in Nazareth, one who gained favor with men, one who was cheered and praised, will soon be scorned and mocked by the very same people. Because they were not Jesus was not the kind of king they were expecting. Interesting, many times you only read this as a celebration of his entry into Jerusalem. The story is told with great glee and excitement. 
And we miss out on what they missed out on. Why was Jesus weeping? Why was he heartbroken as the people were praising him? Because they weren't really praising him. They were praising what they thought he could do for them. And they missed the reason he really came. See, we're going to focus on three reasons the Jews rejected Jesus and how many of us today make the same mistakes. Their hope was tied to their expectations rather than their faith. And how many times today when Jesus doesn't show up in the way we think he should show up, when the situation doesn't turn out the way we prayed for it to turn out, does the cheering stop? And instead, by our words, our actions, we scorn him and ridicule him. See, on that Palm Sunday, as Jesus approached Jerusalem, there were several things he was aware of. He knew the circumstances surrounding the people. And he also knew the condition of their heart. He knew what they were going through. And he knew what they wanted. And he knows the same about us. Make no mistake. He knows what you're going through. And he knows what you want. But more importantly, he knows what you need. And he will not let what you want drown out what you need. And so you're here. And maybe you're here because somebody invited you. Maybe, maybe you're here for the first time. Maybe you've been coming here. But you're, you don't feel joyful. You don't feel hopeful. You feel exhausted and weary and tired. And Jesus, and we say it every week, invites us, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Do we take him up on that invitation to come to him, to believe in him, to trust him? At Teen Challenge, we used to, you know, we'd ask guys like, hey, how you doing? They'd be like, good. And then we'd say, well, tell your face. Because they'd walk around like, yeah, I got the joy of the Lord. God is so good. It's like, hey, don't talk to anybody. Don't invite anybody to anything. Like, tell your face, bro. Like, what do you mean? We're supposed to have the joy of the Lord. Not the joy of the world, not the joy of life going the way we want it to go, the joy of the Lord, despite what's going on around us. Because we know how the story ends. And he knows, we know that he's good. See, the Jews were under heavy Roman oppression. They were second-class citizens. They were persecuted. And I mean real persecuted, not like you take your Bible to work and people make fun of you at lunch. I mean real persecuted, right? I mean the kind of persecution now where your own family member will call for you to be killed because you don't follow the culture or religion. That kind of persecution. There were heavy taxes. There were restrictions. People were crucified all over the place. Jesus knew about those things. And he knew that their heart was broken for those things. And he knew what they needed. And he offered them more than just a quick fix. More than just a change of circumstance. He offered them the cure. But they couldn't see it. The Jews were in search of someone. They desired a king, a conqueror, someone to set them free. Everybody's here, and I've said this before, there's all kind of topics you can ask people about. Well, what do you think of this? What do you people that? People will disagree, everything. 
I even one time used the example, I said, you can ask people if like ice cream, and someone was like, I like frozen yogurt, which obviously that's a defect, but anyway. <laughs> so the point is, you, people argue about almost everything, but I've yet to run into anybody like, what do you think about freedom? And they're like, yeah, I'm not a fan. Everybody wants to be free. The ironic thing is, the things that we think will set us free lead to bondage right. and oppression right. and self-centeredness. And rather than fulfill, they, they, they pull us further and further away from that which will fulfill. And there's a profound sadness in that. There's a profound sadness in that. So Jesus knows about these things. And the Jews, they wanted to be set free. And Jesus wanted to set them free. But not just in a moment and not just from one thing. He wanted to set them free from self-centeredness and from sin and from death. He wanted to set them free to change the world. And all they could see was what was in front of them. And they missed it. They missed the bigger picture. And for that, Jesus wept because it broke his heart. And I think he still weeps when he offers that to us. And his heart is broken when all we can see is the thing in front of us. And he says, I see that, and I know that, but there's a bigger picture here. See, the Jews had seen the mighty works of Jesus. They saw him restoring sight to the blind. They saw him healing the lame. They saw him feed the multitude with a boy's lunch with leftovers. They heard of him raising Lazarus from the dead. They listened to him preach with authority. Surely with authority and power like that, Jesus could and surely he would set them free from Roman rule. And we know that in less than a week after these people were praising and cheering Jesus, they were calling for his crucifixion. The same crowd, the same people. Because Jesus didn't do what they expected him to do. He wasn't the king they expected. See, they wanted a conquering king. They wanted revenge. They wanted justice. But Jesus didn't gather any troops. He didn't lead any revolt. He didn't do anything, in fact, they expected him to do. He drove the money changers out of the temple. He paid tribute to Caesar. He taught that giving out of poverty is worth more than giving out of abundance. He said in order to be great, you must be a servant. He talked about, being, about serving instead of being served. He did everything that people didn't want. And so the cheering stopped. And so what kind of king are you expecting? It's amazing, right, when things go our way, when God does what we want, when Jesus rises to our cause, we're all praising, we're all cheering. We use Jesus to make our case for all kinds of things, don't we? Political, ideological, theological. We, we use Jesus as like a pawn. Well, Jesus would do this. Jesus would say this. Like we manipulate. But what about when he doesn't do what we want him to do? What happens when you face oppression? What happens when you experience trouble? What happens when life, as it often does, comes at you and it doesn't make sense and it doesn't feel good? 
And it's not fair. Too often the cheering comes to a stop. And words of adoration and praise quickly fade. But I promise you, as sure as I'm standing here, and I hate to say it out loud because I don't want God to know, but fire refines our faith, and we grow in the trials, and he's close to the brokenhearted. And you know what happens? You know what happens when things get, when things get easy, when everything goes the way we want? We kind of hit autopilot, don't we? A.W. Tozer said, we can stand affliction better than prosperity because in prosperity we forget God. Things are going good and we got it. We're all set. But we're not all set. In the third chapter of Daniel, we see really there's two parts to this. There's, there's, the, there's the superficial faith. There's the faith that, that, we all, that we all have. There's the faith where we ask God to deliver us, where we ask God to change the situation. That's good. We ought to do that. We're going to see Jesus does that. And so when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, in Daniel 3, when they're asked to bow down to the king, they say this, our God will deliver us. Our God can deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down and worship any other idol. Because they trusted in God, right? And in Daniel 3.19, Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times harder than usual. And commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie them up and throw them into the blazing furnace. He did whatever he could do, because when people, when you're walking in God's will, people come across, uh, stand against you, right? And they're not standing against you, they're standing against God. And so the king did whatever he was possible. I'm going to make it as hard as possible. I'm going to get the strongest guides as possible. And that's what he does, and you see it. So these men, verse 21, wearing their robes and trousers and turbans and clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the three men firmly tied fell into the furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar left to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? And they replied, certainly, your majesty. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. God is with you in the fire. God will always be with you in the fire. And like Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, Lord, take this cup from me. That's what we can all pray. Lord, change the circumstance. Change the situation. That's good. You ought to pray that. But the second part, the more mature part of our faith is, Lord, but if not, not my will, but yours be done. See, that's where our faith is refined. That's where our relationship is strengthened. That's where our trust takes us deeper. There are things in life right now, I want a certain outcome. I think it's the right outcome. I think it's the good outcome. It's the outcome I'm believing and trusting God for. And I have no doubt at all that God can do it. But even if he doesn't, I will still worship him. And I still won't bow down to any other idols because I know that God is good and I know that he can be trusted. And sometimes God gives us what we want, but he always, 
always, always gives us what we need. It's just that oftentimes our wants and our desires blur our vision to our real needs. I'll say that again. Oftentimes, our wants and our desires blur our vision to our real needs. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, let us hold fast, excuse me, to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. You see, the same thing happened to the crowds that lined the streets to cheer Jesus. There were some things they didn't see, but Jesus did. In John 16, 33, Jesus says, I've told you these things, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And I just mentioned a little while ago, John 20, 26, a week later, his disciples in the house again, discouraged, confused, maybe a little hopeless. And Thomas was there with them, doubting. And through the doors, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. Because Jesus knew and Jesus knows our needs better than we do. And our expectations of Jesus are wrong because we misunderstand his purpose. See, they couldn't see Jesus' purpose because they had their eyes on their immediate circumstance instead of their current condition. See, when you focus on everything around you that's wrong, something happens and your prayers start to change. And they only become, Lord, deliver me, help me, fight for me, uplift me. And we should pray that. But we should also pray, Lord, mold me, use me, grow me, through these things, change me, and get the glory for yourself. So when people look at us, they don't go, oh, look at that guy. It's so remarkable what he's going through. They go, man, despite what the world's thrown at him, all I can see is the Christ inside of him. That's the purpose of our life, to bring him glory, to be be trophies of his grace and mercy, to be ambassadors of hope. To, like Paul says, comfort others in their affliction with what we ourselves have been comforted by. God's comfort. Too often, the desire is for God to change the circumstances instead of for God to change us in the circumstances. And in time, the cheering stops. And we lose sight of him and his purpose. And we diminish our worship of him and we go through the motions, and we do the same things, and we praise him not for who he is, but for what he does or what we want him to do. The people desired deliverance from oppression, and Jesus came to give them that in a deeper way than they could have ever imagined, and they missed it. Jesus will often deliver us from bad situations. He will often heal and restore and grant blessings. But make no mistake, there is something bigger in your life and in my life that he wants to do. And you know, there's a third reason. There are some people who may have recognized who Jesus was. There are some people who may have recognized why Jesus came but they didn't accept his terms. See, most of the time when there were crowds, Jesus would say something to make the crowd shrink, the opposite of what we do. 
We try to find ways to placate, to make, make more crowds. You know, well, maybe if, I, maybe if I say that a little differently. Jesus would do that too, but he'd say, maybe if I say that more pointedly. You've heard it said, you do not commit adultery. I say, if you even look at somebody with lust, that's adultery. You've heard it said, do not commit murder. I say, if you have anger in your heart, you murdered him. His PR people must have been like, Jesus, you don't want to say that. That is not. Why? Do you think Jesus didn't want a lot of people around him? Or do you think he wanted disciples? See, Jesus began to talk more and more about commitment. He did to suggest all people are worth loving. He talked about praying for our enemies, about blessing those who persecute us. He began to talk more and more about a cross, about giving, and about sacrifice. And people will say, well, that makes no sense at all. Well, it's not, most, it's not supposed to make sense to you. It's not supposed to make sense to the flesh because Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Give to receive, die to live, serve to be great. 1 Corinthians 1.18, uh, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. So each of us here have two options when Jesus asks us to follow him. After we've seen the miracles, after we've experienced the miracle of our own salvation, after Jesus comes into our hearts, fills us with his spirit, how will we act when things happen that, doesn't, that don't make sense to us, that don't seem fair? After Jesus feeds the 5,000, after he walks on water, there are things that people don't fully understand or agree with. What happens if we don't accept his terms? Therefore, many of disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? When Jesus talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to him, does this cause you to stumble? Like, this is what you getting hung up on? Like, you guys can't see the forest or the trees. You can't see spiritual things at all. You've missed it entirely. He says, what if you then see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus stands before us now and says he offers life. And what do we do? We stay in a comfortable path to death because we know it. But there are some among you who do not believe for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who didn't believe, who would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I've said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus doesn't go, all right guys, hold on, let's regroup. Let me explain that in a different way. What I was trying to say, he doesn't do that. In fact, he looks at the remaining disciples. He says, what about you guys? What's going to happen now? Are you going to leave me too? Are you going to walk away too? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
We have believed, and I love this, we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So we have two options. We can run away. And when you run away, you're always running to something else, right? When people say, I used to be a Christian. I don't worship God anymore. I'm saying, well, who do you worship now? Because you're worshiping something. So you can run away from God, but what did you run to? You don't just run away from God. You run to something else. Well, you know, I was a Christian. That didn't really work for me. What's working? Tell me what's working. You can, you can run away. Well, this doesn't make sense. I, don't, I, I can't fully wrap my mind around it. Here's what I know for sure. I have a heart condition. It's fatal. I know it as sure as I know anything. There is something profoundly wrong with me. And everything I've tried my entire life to fill that hole, that void, has not fulfilled. And every goal that I set, that I accomplished, if it wasn't a godly goal, if it wasn't what him in my life, it was fleeting. You ever say, God, if you only do this one thing, if you only get me out of this situation, I'll never ask you for anything again. And two seconds later, that apple looks shiny. Where are we going to go back to? Peter's saying, where, where, where are we going to go? Back to seeking the pleasures of the world that never fulfilled. Back to looking at power, things of the world. Where are we going to go? We've come to know who you are. Have you come to know who Jesus is? See, Jesus weeps, realizing that our own choices like Jerusalem will lead to our destruction. And he wants to use you, and he wants to use me, and he wants to do his work through us. But he can't use us if we're still in control. How long in my life was I the clay that sat on the shelf because I was unmoldable? Jesus' terms are that he prune us that we may bear more fruit. He didn't come to grant our wishes. He, come, he came and stood before us and said, I am the fulfillment of every wish you've ever had, of every desire in your heart. It is filled in me, not in what I do. Don't miss that. To be a follower of Jesus means to be in relationship with Jesus. That's why Paul says, when I look back on my life and everything I had, everything I accomplished, all my reputation, none of that compares to being found in Christ, to being in relationship with Jesus that will never leave me, that will never forsake me. Buddha never claimed to be God. Moses never claimed to be Jehovah. Muhammad never claimed to be Allah. Yet Jesus claimed and Jesus came and claimed to be the true and living God. Buddha simply said, I am a, a teacher in search of truth. And Jesus said, I am the truth. Confucius said, I never claimed to be holy. And Jesus said, who convicts me of sin? Muhammad said, unless God throws his cloak of mercy over me, I have no hope. And Jesus said, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. Our Lord's message was himself. He didn't come and simply say, I have bread to offer. He said, I am the bread of life. 
He didn't merely say, I've come to shed light. He said, I am the light. And he did not merely come to point the way. He said, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. Don't lose the fact that in the midst of any circumstance, you are in the presence of the Prince of Peace. We say around here a lot of times, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and Pastor Willie, that worship is the antidote to worry. Because it takes all the focus off of us and it puts it on him where we ought to be. Jesus is very practical when he says, don't worry. But then he doesn't leave it there. He goes, look, by worrying, are you adding any time to your life? Psychologists will say conservatively, 85 to 90% of the stuff we worry about never comes to pass. It's probably higher. Think about that. Most of the stuff that's in your head and you worry about, Jesus, Jesus is saying, don't worry. Trust me. Walk together. Enjoy each day. And keep ministering. Maybe you're here and you lost your hope. You can regain lost hope with Jesus' help right now. You can turn to the author and the perfecter of your faith. Why don't you bow your heads with me as we pray together. In Hebrews it says, This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope that is both sure and steadfast. Father, forgive us for not seeing you as you truly are. Use your word to encourage us. Hide it in our hearts. Holy Spirit, direct us moment by moment as we wait, hopefully, for you to fulfill your promises, God. We love you and we praise you. Still 2,000 years later, the only sure bet is the man riding on the donkey. And it's in his name we pray. I was at the uh, men's breakfast this Saturday and a dear brother looked at me and he said, I am so grateful to be a part of this family of God, to be a part of what God's doing in this place. And that's what we celebrate. Communion is remembering the promise, remembering who Christ was, why he came and what he did, and it's also remembering that he'll come again. And it's recognizing that we are in communion with God and we are in communion with one another and that our hope is not tied to expectations or outcome. Our hope is tied to our faith in Jesus Christ who will never let us down, amen?